This episode of The Asian Americans is brought to you by The Quarter Pounder with Cheese from McDonald's. It's QPC time. Did your mouth just water? The QPC is the burger that breaks the norms of etiquette, the burger that napkins were made for, the burger that's saucy, drippy, oozing with flavor, always cooked when you order. So the next time you want a mouth-watering burger, order the QPC from McDonald's. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Hope you are staying healthy and safe wherever you are. Uh, really excited to share this story with you today uh, with my friend and now business partner, Justin Nguyen. Uh, we recorded this actually a little while ago, um, just at the start of the year. And so our, our perspectives and our outlook uh, might be a little bit different um, since the world has changed uh, quite a bit in the last six months. But um, uh, we're actually waiting for the right time to share this conversation with Justin Um We've been work. We met on LinkedIn, and we've been working together on creating a platform called Always Be Creating. And we've had a number of LinkedIn audio events uh, three times a week uh, from January to April. And now we're working to build um, a private community of Asian cr- content creators, and eventually working towards having an in-person uh, content summit or creator summit for Asian creators. And so, really excited to be working with him on this. He is the founder of Declassified Media. And uh, has started and founded uh, Declassified College, the podcast, and now TikTok series, which has been giving college students great life advice, great school advice, and uh, just most recently uh, gave away $10,000 in scholarships on graduation day at his alma mater at University of Central Florida. Um, in helping us to uh, understand what the Asian creator wants and needs in building a community and an event series, we're launching, uh, we're in the middle actually by the time you hear this, of doing a survey series the Asian Creator Survey uh, 2022. And so if you have the time and want to contribute to it, uh, you can reach it easily at bit.ly slash Asian Creator Survey. That's bit.ly slash Asian Creator Survey. Uh, and one lucky person who fills out the survey will be given $300 to spend at their favorite Asian-owned business. Uh, we've already had about 70 submissions on the survey, and so we're very excited to learn what you want and what you need and help us build a community that can serve us and to help us grow our Asian creator pie. And so really excited uh, to share this with you, um, my conversation with Justin Wynn. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and hope you are staying healthy and safe. Life seems to be getting a lot closer to whatever we thought normal was, at least in the sense of uh, us getting together, uh, us experiencing some things that we have missed dearly. As we record this today, we are in the middle of baseball postseason. Dodgers are giving me a lot of anxiety every single day. Basketball started yesterday, so I'm hoping for a good season for my Clippers, and I'm pretty sure our guest today is hoping for a good season for his Orlando Magic. Today, I am so excited to share this conversation with you and with him. Um, as we talk about content creation and what it means to be a super duper non-traditional Asian American in the sense that we have decided to go down the path of just sharing our ideas and uplifting other people's voices. I met him on LinkedIn of all places, which is my favorite place to hang out online where there's really not a whole lot of loud Asian Americans on LinkedIn. And so uh, my friend and guest today, Justin, really glad to have connected with him and we share a lot of the same passions for content creation, creating opportunities and creating economic freedom for all of us. So Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you for for having me on. Great intro. And to your point about Orlando Magic, honestly, not expecting too, too much uh, from this year. So 
we're in a constant rebuilding phase, but we're never too, too, too bad. But we'll see. I, I don't know what's worse, man. Like, because with the Clippers, you know, I started becoming a fan of theirs when they sucked. And now they're like good, but they're like perpetually disappointing. So I don't know what's, I, I don't know. If you know you're going to suck, if you know your team's going to suck and you're always knowing there's not a whole lot of expectation, it's like, do you want to be second or do you want to be last? Right? Like, I don't know. But much to the, uh, extreme disappointment and groaning of my wife there's now more sports to watch on a, on a daily ongoing basis so let, let's get to know you a little bit uh you run declassified media you have an extremely robust presence on tiktok on linkedin in the podcast world sharing college advice that you never got sharing advice about life and business and everything that many of us don't get but very specifically targeted towards the gen z college demographic suffice it to say it was born out of your frustrations and the things that you did and didn't learn and the support that you did or perhaps didn't get from the traditional resources. Let's roll it back a little bit. Tell us about Justin's family history, not the whole history, but perhaps, you know, how'd you guys move to America? How'd you guys end up in Orlando? And uh, tell us a little bit about you and your earlier days. Definitely. Yeah. So both of my parents are Vietnamese uh, refugees. They came here when they were both very young probably around the age of anywhere between like 10 to 13 years old or so. Mom settled in Connecticut, dad settled in Texas, and then somehow my dad found his way to Connecticut and that's how they met. Um, I was originally born in Connecticut, raised up there until high school, and that's when I made the jump down to Orlando for college because I just didn't want to take final exams in the in the snow. And then my fam my family always wanted to move down here too. So they followed me down to, to the warm weather. So that's like the long story of how we got to Orlando. It's been super interesting coming from a super small town to now living in a medium sized city, I would say, um, once you get outside of the Disney World side of things. And it's been it's been awesome. I can't complain. So maybe the question that you have gotten, um, that certainly is, is on my mind is, how do Vietnamese people end up in Connecticut? And, and, and is there, and how did you find community? I, I mean, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you how they ended up in Connecticut. Um, but what I do know is there is a, a, a small community of Vietnamese people in uh, Connecticut. And it seems that everyone kind of knows everyone. Uh, like sort of a lot of them, like I grew up in the Vietnamese church in Connecticut, in Hartford, Connecticut. And then there's like a Vietnamese soccer team that my dad played for. And, and then when I was a kid growing up, I would play with them um, all the time. So I grew up around a lot of my dad's friends who all played soccer. So there is a smaller community, nothing compared to if you go to New York, Boston or those surrounding areas. But there, there is a, a, a good enough community to feel welcomed in Connecticut. That's awesome. And, and why Florida? I mean, obviously, running away from cold weather is something that many of our people understand. I live in L.A. and. I don't know, it's October and I'm wearing a t-shirt. So I certainly enjoy warmer climates too. But what was it about Florida that one initially wanted to get you down there? And then what made you want to stay post-graduation? A, was just warm weather. B, it was just a lot cheaper to live down here, especially coming from Connecticut. You're from LA, so you totally understand the taxes side of things. Um, it's way cheaper to live down here. And it's just more enjoyable. Like, I don't think you realize the effects of like seasonal depression until you move from a place that is cold and wintry like Connecticut. But that's been a huge plus since then. And why I've stayed is a little bit a just to, to keep my bearings around. And I think 
it's a lot easier to, to become a large fish in a small pond than trying to branch out into one of the the major cities and make a name for yourself there. So I wanted to make my name and my brand in Orlando first. And then now we're actually looking to see if there's any spaces outside of Florida that we could, me and my girlfriend can move into. So there, we might be moving not soon, but kind of soon. That's cool. What, what did you want to be? What did you want to do? What were some of your early career influences, whether it was from your family or from your community? UCF, most people don't know, but biggest, biggest school in the country from a uh, student perspective. You have a lot of options, a lot of different things that you could have pursued. What did you want to do early in life? Yeah, I mean, high school, everything was soccer related. I, I thought and I wanted to go pro playing soccer, um, playing for two to three teams at a time, um, essentially working kind of like a full time job uh, out of side of being a student of like four or five hours of practice every single day and then uh, four games every single weekend for the most part. But my junior year of high school, I broke my leg and that's when things kind of really took a switch. I was like, oh, well, now I have to go try to probably try to find a job or something like that. Um, going into college, my first major was an athletic training major. And that thought process was, I want to combine my love of being an athlete with my parents dream of me becoming a doctor, like very, very stereotypical Asian parents in that in that fashion. And I did that for about a year. And the science courses just kicked my butt. And my roommate at the time was a business major. And we both played this video game called FIFA. And there's a stock market side to it. And you can like buy and sell players for more or less coins. So very similar to the stock market. And I was broke, so I couldn't buy coins. And so what I did is I learned how to trade using like YouTube and stuff and like learning pattern recognition and all that stuff. And I traded to a million coins in like the first three months of my freshman year. And he was like, dude, we can be rich. Let's do this together. You should get into finance, da, 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 da. And that's what led me into being interested in the world of business and finance. I had not even known what the stock market was prior to that. And that's sort of what brought me into learning things from like Gary Vee and entrepreneurship and content creation. And that's where I am today. There's a lot there I want to talk to you about. <laughs> I mean, let, let's start with, with sports. I, I think, were they encouraging of that? Like, did you, you know, I, I think soccer is interesting because um, it, it is... Americans don't think so, but it is the global sport. There are plenty of opportunities to play all over the world for great sums of money in, in certain cases. What was that something that, you know, you mentioned earlier that your father played in a Vietnamese soccer league. Did you believe that you could get a future out of playing? And, and you know, how were your folks supportive or not in, in terms of chasing that dream initially? Yeah, I mean, I genuinely thought that I could have played pro um, if I put in the effort um, growing up. But my dad loves soccer for the longest. Like he's the reason why I got into playing soccer. And I played for one of the, if not the top teams in Connecticut um, at the time. And we were winning championships and doing all things like that. Now, in terms of support, I think they were, I think my dad really supported me. I think my mom supported me, but she was always like, Hey, like you should pay attention to school. Um, like, focus on your grades and everything like that. So I'd always done well in soccer and I'd always done well or decently in school too. So it was kind of a, a combination of both. I think the hardest thing for me was just always being typically the only Asian on the field. That was always like a weird sort of like identity crisis, so to say, because yeah. even like playing against other kids uh, or other teams very rarely 
would there be another Asian on on the other team? And there was always a running joke between my even myself and, and my team where if there's an Asian kid on the other team, you either know that he is really good, like he's nasty, or he's just like barely making the team and he's not even <laughs> going to see the field. Like there's almost never an in-between <laughs> when it comes to seeing an Asian on the other side of the field, at least for, for my experience. And I, I think a part of that was just like, me understanding a little bit of Asian culture was like, if you're not good, a lot Asian parents are typically very blunt and like, yeah, we're not spending this time and money on this, especially soccer, where it can get really expensive when you're getting to the the higher levels, as most sports do, unfortunately, in the US. Yeah, I, I think the way that even my parents looked at sports, like I in, in high school, I didn't really participate in organized sports. But prior to high school, like I was on a swim team, I swam every day, but like I didn't go to meets. Like I did little league, but like was pulled out before it got serious. I did NJB basketball, same thing, right? And I think it's one of those things that many parents who are who want an academic path for us initially see those things as like necessary evils almost to check the boxes and put it on a resume so that it makes you look well rounded. Because some college consultant told them that. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think my parents saw it as also an opportunity to get a scholarship for college, right? I think that was ultimately their goal for the payoff. I mean, shout out to my parents. Like we're talking driving 40 minutes, three, four times a week to practice. And then on the weekend, sometimes having to drive to New York one day and then Boston the next day. So that's like a two hour drive, right? So my parents were putting in the time, they're putting in the effort to just provide this potential opportunity for me. So without a doubt, I think that they supported me because they wouldn't put in that time or money because that is now looking back on it, that is a crap ton of time and money um, spent on, on that. So I think it was like a potential at a scholarship, which unfortunately never ended up happening. But here we are. Well, well shout out to the parents who, who do that. And, and this was like before smartphones. So like they actually had to like, sit in their cars waiting or, you know, actually pay attention. Oh, yeah. <laughs> quick, quick side note, you, you mentioned you played FIFA. I, I just learned that, um, and then this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's just fun for me, me to talk about. I'm sure you, Justin, as well. That EA, Electronic Arts, who has owned the rights to produce the FIFA game for the last 30 years, are splitting their ways because FIFA wanted a billion-dollar licensing agreement, 250 each year for four years. And EA just basically said, no, I, that's too much. And so, I mean, if you follow the World Cup, if you follow FIFA, or if you are just a general fan of soccer, you have feelings about FIFA. I certainly do. <laughs> that's ridiculous, man. A billion yeah, dollars it, for... It's, it's insane, dude. Like, I what mean, do you guys do? Sorry, I'm sure you do stuff, but they like... Make, they make so much money. If you're looking at just... Um, I believe I saw an article from... So the 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 game mode that I made my my money in the million coins or whatever that's called yeah. FIFA Ultimate Team and kind of tying it back to my story. So if you don't have the chops or if you don't want to learn how to trade um, with Ultimate Team, you can buy packs on FIFA with real money. The same way you could buy like trading card packs in real life or anything like that. So kids will spend a, a lot of money on these things, and I think. There is a stat where last year, I think EA grossed over a billion dollars in just pack sales, not including game sales or anything yeah. else, just pack sales. So, I mean, they do have money, but I mean, a billion dollars over four years is still insane. It's for wild. Just a licensing deal. It's wild. So <laughs> you've had the entrepreneurial chops. You were always doing non-traditional things. You went into UCF in Orlando to initially study sports medicine. What changed? Because you haven't had a 
I don't want to say a real job. You have, what you have is a real. You did not come out of college with a traditional job. What did you experience? What did you see? Um, I'm always fascinated because college for me was 20 years ago. Although I think I have a pretty uh, a better grasp of what college students are going through today than the average 38 year old. But I, and, and in some ways, am so excited for your generation because not only are there more opportunities to do non traditional things, you actually have the belief that you can do it. Whereas I had to unlearn a lot of that. Like I started my entrepreneurial journey in the media game at 36, not because I couldn't, because for the first 15 years of my career, I kept believing, well, I'm supposed to get a job. I'm supposed to go to grad school and maybe more money through a a more quote unquote prestigious job will help me get there. But tell me about what sort of things you experienced, what conversations did you have with your friends that ultimately led you to decide, hey, maybe I don't want to go get a nine to five initially. I think for me, like the big realization now, as I talk to a lot of like my brother's friends who are younger than me, and then like my brother's friends, friends who are like even younger, my cousin's friends that are even younger is you just don't know what you don't know. And until that option gets put in front of you, there's no way that you could ever even understand what is potentially in front of you. And the way that I boil it down to is I don't mean any shade by this, but this is just kind of from my background is a small town mindset versus a, a, a city mindset. Hmm. And what I mean by that is like growing up, I grew up in Windsor, Connecticut. Everyone knew everyone. There was one high school in all of Windsor and it was like a thousand kids. And when you're comparing that to down here in Florida, that's literally nothing. And if you didn't work a nine to five at like one of the companies in the area or in insurance in Hartford, um, that was basically all that there was to do in Connecticut. Whereas when I moved down to Orlando and especially my first year at the University of Tampa, that was my real first exposure to like massive amounts of wealth. And I'm talking like crazy amounts of wealth that I had never been able to interact with in Windsor, Connecticut. Um, I was meeting kids that we would nickname like the Prince of the Bahamas, kids where if their parents died, they would get hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And like, I, again, that's just something that I could never fathom. And then when I started talking to these individuals, I started to understand that a lot of them come from business backgrounds, or their parents are in some sort of business or whatever, maybe not necessarily a nine to five. So that's what kind of got me interested in this space. I think a lot of this, again, comes from just things that you happen to come across through the internet. But that first initial push for me came from just being able to interact with people outside of my small town. And I think if I had stayed in Connecticut in that, again, quote unquote, small town mindset, I I don't think I would be where I am today. Like if I had gone to UConn, which I did get accepted into their kinesiology program, which is like a really hard program to get into, apparently, I probably would have stayed in kinesiology rather than going down this path. And I'm way way happier um, than than what I think I would be if I'd gone down that traditional kinesiology uh, path. Let's talk about exposure and sort of, you, you know, you mentioned your exposure to wealth, your exposure to more opportunities and sort of the dreaming of what was possible. I find that fascinating hearing it from you because y'all grew up with the internet, right? Like in the olden days, and I hate, this is like the funniest thing I saw. They said in the late 1900s, I'm like, fool, that was when I grew up. This makes it sound much older. Like we were really, what you saw was what you got, right? Because the media that you're exposed to was controlled by traditional media outlets, TV, newspaper, magazines. The internet was so young that literally what you saw in your physical surroundings was the majority of what you're exposed to. But your generation grew up with the internet, had access to things, 
what do you think was the gap between what was available to see and to be exposed to on the internet and, and from what you felt and having not seeing enough of what was possible based on where you grew up? So I think, and this is something that I, I, I see talking with my friends that are still in like Windsor, Connecticut and stuff like that. Uh, I think there's a difference between seeing something on the internet and then interacting with that same sort of mindset in real life. Uh, and what I mean by that is, yes, could I have technically come across Gary V's content while I was still in Windsor? Yes. Could I have come across the Grand Cardones, et cetera, of the world while I was still on YouTube, um, watching YouTube in Connecticut? Sure. But I think there is a, a a physical switch where if you're able to meet someone in real life that has access to that wealth and then you talk to them, you start to see some of the content that you'll see online differently. Uh, it's really hard for me to explain, but like, yes, Zoom meetings are great, but if you meet someone in real life, it is very different, as I'm sure you can confirm, than if you're meeting with someone over Zoom, right? And that's the only real explanation that I can share there is, yes, that information is available, but it's just a little bit different when you're able to like see it, touch it, feel it, um, and it's right in front of you. So you mentioned a couple of names that if you listen to podcasts or are on social media, you've probably been exposed to either from your peer circles or because they spend a ton of money on advertising. And let's talk about relatability in terms of content sharing and more on the context of you as a Vietnamese kid in Connecticut and now Florida, me being a Korean American immigrant kid who was taught that as long as you keep your head down and work hard, that merit will get you everywhere in America only to realize over and over and over again, like, hey, like what I look like actually does play like in your soccer story, like judgments were made based on the way you look and whether that was realized or whether things were verbalized, like context does play a critical role in the opportunities that we are given and, and the lessons in, in life that we learn. How, how much of that did that play? And, and, and I'll share, I, I used to be a, a very, very avid fan of one of them a lot until he started to say things where he basically said, I know what it means to raise immigrant children, Asian immigrant children in particular. And I was like, no, you don't. Like, you actually have no idea. And I'm not trying to make, I know it's Gary. Like, <laughs> I'm not trying to make light of your struggles as an immigrant from the Eastern Bloc and from the former Soviet Union and the struggles that you went, you grew up. But like, you actually have no idea what it means to grow up with certain academic expectations of what Asian culture does for you. But he was on a speaking circuit in, you know, in Asia and then in, in certain audiences where he's like, yo, I get it. And I was like, and that, that light bulb went off for me. I was like, your advice is not good for me 100% of the time. And no life advice in general, I think, is universally correct. It's either right for you or right for somebody else. But I, I think, you know, when, when it comes to those sort of over blanketing, like, because they're in mass media, right? They, wanna, they want eyeballs, they want followers. And so I understand their need to have broad advice. H how was that for you? And then, you know, how did that influence you wanting to create specific content for your Gen Z audience from a Gen Z audience because you're not the first and you won't be the last college advice platform. But what did listening to those guys and paying attention to those guys for a while, as many of us have had, teach you about specificity and context-based, you know, advice sharing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think growing up, I always had like an identity crisis, right? Um, in my high school, there's about 
1200 kids maybe in my class there was 400 kids 300 400 kids and out of those 300 400 kids there is probably like four asian kids all of them were vietnamese and i had never known should i hang out with the black kids should i hang out with the white kids should i hang out with the hispanic kids um like i didn't know what group i necessarily belonged to when it came to like the color of my skin what i look like uh, how that translated to the content that I saw online is I was begging to see someone that looked like me or sounded like me or had a um, a similar background to me on stage. The only person that I saw was Dan Locke. And this was the very beginnings of Dan Locke. And <laughs> I just did not see myself in the content that he is producing like at all. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to watch this guy's stuff. Like um, in the backseat of a two-door car? Yeah, yeah, it's just it just wasn't for me. Um, and the only person that I could relate to at least a little bit from a messaging standpoint were the Gary V's of the world, the, the Lewis Howes, etc. But I like I tried my hardest to find an Asian person that looked like me that was making some sort of noise because I wanted to follow them. I wanted to support them. I wanted them because I know that they could probably relate to me at least a little bit. Like growing up, the only Asian people that I had sort of known from a media standpoint was like Yao Ming playing basketball, Jeremy Lin during Lin Sanity, which was great. It was amazing. Um, and then Tim Delaghetto when he was Tim Delaghetto on YouTube. Like besides those three and like Nikahiga as well, um, that was really it. But from a business standpoint, there was no one that I could relate to from a you look like me, sound like me standpoint. And the reason that I create this content isn't necessarily to um, speak directly to Asian Americans or Asian students in general. I understand that my message resonates to them a little bit more. But what I've seen is that Asian Americans gr gravitate to my content. Like I've looked at the analytics and when I did a survey uh, of our audience, we got like, I think it's 60 or 70% of students following our stuff are Asian. Um, and that was to me really eye-opening because I had never set out to do that. Um, but it is something that just kind of happened because there's not much representation for people who look like us or sound like us on on the internet right now. Hey, look, I 100% agree. I, I took a little bit of a different path, and at least for dear Asian Americans, this show, like it is a very hyper focused. Like, hey, we're going to talk about Asian American stuff with Asian Americans, a largely Asian American audience. Although I know other folks listen, and thank you for listening, but. When I share stuff on LinkedIn, when I share stuff on Instagram or, you know, in any broad audience place, the people who like me, who like the stuff, who comment, who engage, who follow, who DM, all look like me and you, particularly men, knowing because I didn't, same thing. So the reason why I'm starting, I started all this and we're going to, you know, go venture off far beyond the years Americans is 20 years ago when I was in college, I didn't have me. And when I talk to you, your generation, there still isn't enough of me. There's a few, but there's not a whole lot. And what I find unacceptable is that my kids grow up saying there still wasn't because you and I are doing the same thing where we're creating content. Again, not maybe not necessarily specifically saying this is for Asian Americans, but, and yes, Race has to do with it. Yes, gender has to do with it. But if we put all people on a range of a spectrum of privilege, people generally do not take business and life advice who they perceive to be lower on the privilege spectrum. 
Therefore, I know for a fact that those who are far more privileged than I am in this country in particular, whether it is through race or wealth or academics, don't come to me. However, I realize, and you do as well, if we're college educated and our parents are too, like we are actually, even though we always feel imposter syndrome, we are so damn far up the privilege ladder that there are so many people who don't have anybody to follow. And what I love about what you're doing, man, is there's such a danger, in my opinion, of a young Asian American kid listening to some of the podcasts that we talked about, reading so many of these business books that say there is a universal answer to your life's problems. And some of the funny ones are wake up at 4am, just think about and manifest destiny, you know, work hard, whatever. It's not advice that's specifically tailored to a refugee and adoptee or an immigrant's experience. And we certainly don't understand the experience of somebody who is a descendant of a slave or somebody who is black that gets discriminated even more, right? And so if you keep telling marginalized people that there is a formula and if it doesn't work, it's your fault, we end up raising like generations of diverse Asian American kids and other ones who self-blame that it's their fault that they couldn't figure out the American system. but. I'm not saying there's a separate cheat code, but life is a little different for us because we walk into a boardroom, there's things that you have to be mindful of, right? And so that's why I love what you're doing. And I don't think it needs to be like Asian American specific content, but I think people, creators especially have to realize perhaps you choose your audience, but then your audience chooses you. And, and you have to be able to understand that there's a reason why if you and I say the same thing, it will resonate very differently because we're from a different generation. We have different even ethnicities. But certainly, a lot of the life and business advice that other people share, if we say it, it hits different because it's all about context. So I, I, I love what you're doing, man. Um, was there a light bulb moment, a pain point that you said, hey, the college advice market needs me and this is why I need to be doing this? I think for me, the reason that I focused on the college advice space is because when I was starting in the space, there was really no one creating content around this at all. Um, definitely no Asian Americans creating content ar around this. Um, and when I looked back at sort of my upbringing, I realized that it just didn't seem like I had any career advice from my parents. Um, mm. And that's not necessarily their fault because what they understood, especially back in the day when you could get a college degree and that would equal a job, that's all they knew, right? They don't understand, they don't even know what a product manager is or anything like that of all these new careers that are popping up that seem like every single day. So I knew I couldn't blame my parents, but what I wanted to be is a voice for the younger generation of saying, hey, there's all this stuff out there. Let me be that bridge, that gap between what is happening in the corporate world and what can be happening and the information and sharing it to you before you get to that, that space. Um, I just wanted to be the voice that I wish I had when I was in college. And it seems that a lot of students um, are liking that stuff. And especially because we're able to share this, this information in a non-boring way. And we're not coming at it from a hey, Jerry, you need to do X, Y, Z because I did X, Y, Z. It's more of like, hey, this student just graduated with the job. He did X, Y, Z. Take some inspiration from it. If you want to use it, great. That's why it's a cheat code. If you don't want to use it, go ahead. That's that's not our fault. Um, it's more of we give you the cheat code. It's your option if you want to use it or not. We can probably talk for hours on this because I, <laughs> I think you know we we have been taught, again, 
our, our parents and grandparents collectively, like the majority of Asia, literally, if you go back two generations, were in conflict, in war, in, in one way, shape, or form. Occupation, war, famine, just terrible conditions. In a homogeneous society, as many Asian countries are, when you don't have to worry about racial discrimination or whatnot, academics is probably and legitimately the best way out of poverty when there are actually no other options. And so they took what they knew, came here, and did their best. And so I know a lot of young people get really upset and be like, oh, my parents understand. They don't, you know, what, what really bothers me is when then they get very negative on their parents and start making fun of them and saying like, oh, they don't know anything. Can you imagine at our age, like picking up and going to a brand new country? I can't, I can't do it. With kids, in many cases, with no money and like just literally surviving. But that context is important because now we have the benefit of experience and hindsight to be able to share contextually like, hey, this worked for me, but it may not work for you. But we were in, in our cultures and our communities, we, we were taught so much under the lens of expectation and permission, where we had to ask to do stuff, where we were just assumed to be good at X, Y, Z. The norm for me was to follow in the footsteps of my dad and become a doctor until I opted out very angrily in junior high and saying, I don't want to be a doctor. And they're like, <laughs> okay, maybe this kid, maybe we can't force this kid into going to med school, right? And, and like, that's the experience for so many of us. And it's not bad, but it, it worked. But I, I think it's also part of what you're doing is to plant the seed that, and, and to open people's eyes, even young folks' eyes, that there is so much opportunity far beyond the prescribed menu of X, Y, and Z. I, I do want to talk to you, Justin, you know, this year, and obviously, uh, through the pandemic, social media has gone and it's interesting. Uh, roller coaster ride, everybody's been home, everybody's been looking at their screens. And and so content creation and content consumption has gone up quite a bit. Your biggest platform now for declassified media, which started out primarily as a podcast, is on TikTok. Tell us about that. Why, why did you decide to do it? How did you test it? How did you get over your, your camera fright? Us audio guys, you know, many of us don't even know what we look like. But now you're sticking a camera in your face every day and like letting the world see you. And now you got a quarter million people following you there uh, with, with great success and influence. Tell us about your TikTok journey. To understand why TikTok worked, I'm going to have to like talk about why all the other platforms didn't work for us first. Mm. And what I mean by that is before Declassified Media, I had a company and a podcast called uh, Get Your Grind Up. And around that was a little bit career focused, but more about trying to get in front of young college students and sharing the backstories behind all of these crazy young success stories and showing the work that would actually go behind them. And we started that with a podcast, which was great, but we tried to create that content on Instagram. And what we learned was educational content on Instagram, if it's educational only, is really hard to get views and engagement on it because people just don't look for that stuff typically on Instagram. But with TikTok, the unique thing that I found was since the For You page pushes stuff to you all the time, everyone worries about their career. But I mean, how many people do you know will look up hashtag career advice? Very little. But if a career piece of content or a career cheat code pops up on your For You page and it answers a question that you've always had in the back of your head, you're more likely to actually watch that video because it's now being served to you, right? 
And that's why I think TikTok did so well for Declassified was because even though these kids probably would never look up how to set up your LinkedIn on um, on YouTube or how do you set how do you actually network with LinkedIn on YouTube or any or Instagram, whatever it may be. When that video pops up in front of you, you're interested enough to watch the whole thing. Um, and that's why I think TikTok is our biggest platform. Um, Reels is starting to pick up a little bit for us, but it's been great for, for a media company as a whole as it's allowing us to share all these cheat codes for free to, to all of our students. One comment that, or I guess one thing that people in the media space always sort of grapple with is figuring out strategically how to get your content shown more, whether by picking the topic or through production or through whatever algorithmic hacks that people think they know versus the old feel the dreams comment, which is if you build good content, they will come. And if you consistently build it, they will come. How, how do you strike the balance between the two? I think the number one thing has to be that your content is good. Now, all because your content is good doesn't mean that everyone in the world will see it. And also what I've had to learn the hard way is all because I think something is good doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's good or the hundreds of thousands of people that follow us think it's good. And I think that's the biggest problem that a lot of people face in the content world is they're like, I just spent 10 hours on this YouTube video. I went hard on it. I color graded it. Da 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 da. This thing is going to be amazing because I think it's amazing. But in reality, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the other person on the other side of the screen thinks. And I think a lot of people don't have that realization until it's too late and they end up giving up. Um, when it comes to the hacks and the algorithm and things of that nature, uh, I think those are great add-ons um, that can help um, like be fuel to your fire, essentially. But they will never be the source of the fire. You're going to need good content to to be able to go to the moon, essentially. I think what you just said works opposite too. We should never be the judge of our own career or judge of our own content. And I think, I bet you every creator who's had something go viral, there's a viral piece in there that they never thought would do well because they're, they either talk themselves out of it or they thought it was too simple to share or they're like, ah, and then it blows up. And so, I mean, the, the lesson literally is like, just create. Nobody, nobody bats a thousand to use a baseball reference, right? Like, Nobody has every single video go viral, especially in the early days. And so if you don't know what's going to hit, you just have to throw things out there. And, and I think, you know, that's sort of, I don't know, I, I see it a lot of with other friends who, who do content create, like they, they try to perfect it. And if you overthink it, you probably could have spent that time creating three, two or three more pieces of content. And if it doesn't do well, who cares? Like nobody's going to judge you for a flop piece of content. It's, you know, and again, I think it's putting good content out there, but also having a very uh, good understanding of how, how the game works. A couple more questions for you, Justin. Um, what is the future? What do you want to do? How do you want to impact uh, your community and then ultimately be the voice and be the face or be uh, the influence that you wish you had growing up? Where do you see Declassified going in the, uh, the short and long future? Yeah, like for me, the dream is declassified media becomes the next BuzzFeed, but for career education. I think we're on the right path where we're able to turn boring, quote unquote, boring topics like LinkedIn, resumes, interview skills, yada, 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 into interesting stories or finding interesting stories to tell those tips and tricks to students that are following us. 
Um, the, the end goal really is to really bring on other student talent um, so that they're the ones sharing these stories. Because again, I understand, yes, I am Asian. And yes, Asians are notorious for staying and looking young for as long as possible. But I do think that there comes a time where I, I, I am very similar in your situation where a lot of my tips and advice might not necessarily be relevant to the college students that are graduating at that time. And so I want to be consistent in, in the way that my face is not declassified media instead of declassified media is for the students. And so we're always getting advice and career content from things that are happening today or this year or this past semester, rather than things that might have worked 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Because especially right now, things move so fast that if you're creating content that was working five years ago, it could be completely irrelevant today. I agree. We have to evolve. I mean, five years ago, none of this existed. You know, in, in future conversation, we should probably talk about what this means for uh, building community digitally, what it means for crypto stuff and NFT spaces. And none of those things were household names even two years ago, uh, or not very many. And so, you know, we evolve. And I think that's sort of the lessons that we want to learn, right? Like our parents did the best that they could given the information that they had. We didn't really find their advice or their guidance to be as relevant or as contextually important because the world was changing. And so for us to be able to continue to impact people in a long-term sort of greenfield, evergreen mindset, we always have to be open to learning and open to evolving as, as we go. I am so excited for you. We try not to be ageist on the show, but I wish I had your vision and your really confidence to go create something on your own at your age, because that's the best lesson. And so I, I wish you nothing but the success. And, and let's end the show the way that we always do. And you know, share with our audience, the Asian American audience, anything inspirational, motivational, or something that you've learned by helping us close out the show and complete the letter, dear Asian Americans. We overestimate what we can accomplish in one year and we underestimate what we can achieve in 10. And I think that's been the sort of epitome of my whole life. If you had told me when I was a sophomore in college that I could be speaking in Dubai, I would have hundreds of thousands of students following my content that I could get paid to speak and all these different sort of things, I would have told you that you're lying to yourself. And that was only like six or seven years ago. But at that same time, when I was a sophomore, I thought that I could, I was literally, I remembered to myself, like, how do I become a billionaire? Like, how do I become a billionaire so I can follow Mark Cuban's journey and own the Orlando City soccer team? Like, I remember literally Googling that and like trying to figure that out as a 20 year old of like, I'm going to become the next youngest billionaire of the world, some something crazy like that. And that was the dream. So and then I would like literally pressure myself um, into thinking that I could become that. So for everyone out there who's listening, whatever pressures you have on you, like understand that you're probably it's going to be a lot tougher to accomplish that goal in the next year or so. But over the course of 10 years, if you just continue to work at yourself, you're never going to imagine where you become. Um, and that has just been amazing to see that actually happen in my own life without me realizing it. That's wonderful, man. And I think it is, we, we live in a world of extreme instant gratification and now, 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 and, but you need to have long-term horizon and know that, I mean, what, life is short, but also life is long. And so I, I wish you the best. I am excited to see where it goes. I mean, your, your life has changed in the last two years in terms of building a brand and then having folks, you know, follow you and 
more than the numbers and more than anything, uh, just the impact. And I think people see you and people know that you and other kids who look like you and who look like me can grow up to create content to impact our community in a very positive way, directly, but also indirectly by giving them the inspiration that they can do it too. And so love what you're doing. I, I got to tell the people, this is like the fourth time we schedule time to record this because every time <laughs> Justin and I get on a call, we end up talking about business and life. And um, an hour later, we both say, oh, shoot, we forgot to record. So <laughs> I'm glad we actually didn't start chit-chatting and, and hit straight to record. I will find all the places where you can find Justin in the link so you can find him. Uh, Declassified Media and Declassified College Podcast uh, is where you can find him. And uh, I really appreciate you making time for this. Continue to change the world and innovate and hopefully hang out with you in person very soon, my friend. No, thank you. I'm excited for that whenever that happens. At the very least, it will be in Austin for South by Southwest. So got a few more months. All right. Thanks, man. Be well. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this wonderful conversation with Justin. Um, really have enjoyed getting to know him and seeing his uh, and our collective growth as creators, as entrepreneurs, and as community leaders. Um, he's actually in town in LA uh, for VidCon. And so we had lunch yesterday together, and I'll see him uh, shortly here uh, for some uh, events in Anaheim at VidCon. And so uh, check out Declassified Media if you have not yet already on TikTok, uh, on LinkedIn. He's also very active as I am. Justin Wynn, as you can find him there. And on Instagram, he is at Justin underscore post. And so a big thanks to um, Justin for sharing his story and for uh, helping us build uh, what comes after or what comes in concert with uh, the Asian Americans and Just Like Media and helping us build Always Be Creating. You can find us at theasianamericans.com or at theasianamericans on Instagram. You can find me, Jerry, at jerrywan.com on the web or at jerryj1 on Instagram or on LinkedIn. Just search Jerry Wan. It's graduation season. It is summertime. Um, a lot of things are happening uh, in the community as well. Uh, on Saturday, there is the big National Unity March in D.C. where about 15,000 people are expected from a variety and diverse group of Asian community groups and leaders to help march on the Washington Mall to help advocate for our community. This past week, uh, there's been a lot of uh, events and commemorations of the 40th anniversary of the uh, murder of Vincent Chin that really sparked the Asian American uh, political and uh, social movement. And so however you're spending your summer and making plans for it, we encourage you, as always, to study a little bit on Asian American history, to uh, listen to other people's stories, read our books, and more importantly, and most importantly, perhaps, to share a little bit of your stories out into the universe. And so thanks again, as always, for tuning in. I am your host, Jerry Wan. Thanks for listening to The Years Americans.